This is an ABC podcast. There are not many sights or smells as gross as a waterway full of decaying animals. It's now more than seven months since tens of millions of fish suffocated to death in New South Wales' Darling River. And that wasn't the first time. If you cast your mind back to 2019, you may remember the viral footage of independent MP Jeremy Buckingham being sick on camera while filming a campaign video along the very same river. Dead fish, a massive stink. Oh, sorry, I'm going to stop. <laughs> and effectively it runs into the billions of fish. At the moment, numbers are saying hundreds of thousands to millions. Gross, even to listen to. But for residents living along the Darling River, fish deaths are no longer an uncommon scene, which has them concerned, to say the least. At the moment, it just seems to be, I don't know, business as usual or uh, she'll be right, mate, type attitude. And it's clearly it's not right. They say more needs to be done to improve waterway health and it needs to happen urgently. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. A proposal to axe Medicare rebates for initial telehealth appointments with specialists has been called discriminatory by people living in regional Australia as doctors warn it could penalise patients. A government committee has recommended that Medicare only contribute to someone's first appointment with a specialist doctor when it's conducted face-to-face. Here's regional health reporter Stephen Schubert. When emergency worker Jess moved from Sydney to North Queensland a few years ago, she was shocked by the lack of mental health support available in her new town. She started using telehealth, phone calls and video chats to consult with specialist doctors. I use telehealth to access a psychiatrist in Brisbane for ongoing uh, management of my depression and uh, complex PTSD. Um, So this is for therapy and medication management. Um, I was also accessing a psychologist in Sydney for approximately 12 months because there was no one um, in my regional area that um, had room on their books for me or was willing to take me on um, either before COVID or during COVID. And she says what was supposed to be a stopgap measure has now become the only way she can access care. It is absolutely essential. Um, when I didn't have access to it, I ended up in hospital um, because I had no access to any care at all when nobody would take me on. Um, so being able to access someone weekly, even if it is via telehealth, without having that sort of face-to-face connection um, that you do have when you're in the same room as someone, it means that I do have someone that I can connect with through the phone, someone that is listening to me, um, someone that can provide that point of contact, of care, um, even though they are a thousand kilometres away, you know, it's better than nothing. Now a proposal to tighten eligibility for Medicare rebates for telehealth appointments with specialists has Jess worried. The Medicare Benefits Schedule Review Advisory Committee has been looking at telehealth rebates brought in as part of the COVID response. In a draft report, it's recommending cutting the rebate for the first telehealth appointments with specialists, arguing that a face-to-face consultation may be preferable for an initial diagnosis. Professor Stephen Robson is the president of the Australian Medical Association. By removing that, the person you're really penalising is the patient, not the specialist. They're going to be 
seeing the patient one way or the other. He says modelling done by the AMA shows patients saved about $1.35 billion in travel costs in 2021-22 by using telehealth. The cost always falls back on patients. And it's the most vulnerable patients to end up paying for it. The Medicare Benefits Committee's report shows that specialist telehealth appointments are being accessed more frequently by people living more remotely. Dr Justin Teng is a Perth-based cardiologist who holds clinics in regional WA, but he also uses telehealth for some appointments. It means less travel for the patients. It also means uh, that uh, you know, patients don't have to take uh, half a day or a day out of work. He says cutting the rebate for initial telehealth appointments would make it harder for some patients to see him. Perhaps patients in, in other regional areas as well, and uh, that would mean loss of access to specialist care for a lot of these patients um, who you know, either would have to travel long distances to, to see a specialist uh, or have to wait a long time or both. One of those patients is Martha Barnard-Ray, who lives in Denmark, a 420-kilometre drive south of Perth. She's gone to the city this week for heart surgery, but for two years has been having regular checkups with Dr. Teng via telehealth, saving her a 800-kilometre round trip each time. Telehealth is something that makes medical care more accessible for people with disabilities, for people who have transportation issues, for people who live in the regions. A spokesperson for Health Minister Mark Butler emphasised that the report is only a draft and part of the committee's normal consultation process. The spokesperson said stakeholder feedback would be considered by the committee. Martha Barnard-Ray says cutting the rebate would be a disaster for people living in regional Australia. It's discriminatory, but also it disincentivizes people's access to healthcare for you know, a government to make the choice to cut that doesn't seem like a sort of fair and equitable choice to make. Telehealth patient Martha Bernard-Ray from Denmark in Western Australia, ending that story there from Stephen Schubert. Now, if you're wondering why the government is recommending a change to Medicare rebates for telehealth, we decided to go back to the source and Australia-wide look through that review. And it said the changes were being recommended to bring specialists in line with GP requirements. ABC Australia Wide. We've just heard how there are concerns about proposed changes to telehealth and the knock-on effects for regional health. We're going to go to the town of Blackall in rural Queensland. The town is having something of a baby boom, but the local hospital don't have maternity services and local women are travelling hundreds of k's to birth their babies. This lack of services in rural Queensland is leaving the communities at a disadvantage, according to a rural child health nurse, Rebecca Bradshaw. She's told our reporter Madeleine McCusker it's not an easy fix, but there needs to be some services available in small communities. I think our three biggest issues that rural women face because when we live rural, regionally and remotely is that of accessibility, that of availability and that of confidentiality in our small towns. And I think they're the three biggest challenges to women accessing care as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the issues that are raised from that lack of maternity services in the bush? Yeah, so I think the most obvious issue that's raised as an outcome from the reduced uh, maternity services in the bush is most definitely having to leave town or home to birth your baby. So a lot of our rural, regional, remote facilities are non-birthing facilities. So a lot of women have to leave town 
to a more regional centre to give birth. And that can be anywhere from two weeks to six weeks that they kind of hang out there. And if all goes to plan, they get to come home. And if things don't go quite to plan, that they're there for even longer. And so I think that's the most obvious issue, is the physical relocation of these women. But I think this, the flow-on effect of that that we don't always see so easily is the financial burden on the families to do that. The separation of a family, because very rarely can the birthing partner or husband or significant other go with that woman for so long because it's an income thing, it's a property management thing, it's a logistics thing. If they have other children, it's really difficult to work out how to manage. So I think there's all of those undercurrents that come with the bigger identifiable issue of non-birthing hospitals. Mm. I guess, what are some of the ways that we can fix these issues that require women to travel away from their family, away from their home for weeks on end yeah. to deliver their child? I don't have all of the answers to that and I actually don't even know if we can fix it. I think we can reduce the impact it has on women by being able to make services more accessible and more available and more confidential. And I think as service providers and healthcare professionals, the way we do that is make sure that our visiting midwives um, can actually get to Blackall or any of our rural towns to provide the antenatal that they need so we can keep them at home as long as possible. That we get them the correct postnatal care so when they come home that they're settled in and well supported through that new transition. And I think another key to that is making sure that our services talk to one another because sometimes there's quite a dysfunction um, and a breakdown in communication between our birthing facilities and our rural facilities. So ideally it would be beautiful if once the mother has birthed her beautiful baby, the birthing hospital sends her hometown hospital or child health services or visiting midwife services or actually all of the above, imagine that, wouldn't that be incredible? Um, a little referral to say, mum's had a baby, this is where they're at, this is what's happening, she will see you or you will see them at home. Um, and then they pick mum up, metaphorically, through the system when she returns home from having her baby. And I think one of the things that let our rural mothers down is that breakdown in um, referral pathways or communications between health professionals and between service streams, which is really unfortunate. So I think if, while we can't fix the entire problem, I think there's certainly room for improvement in the um, smaller areas that all contribute to that. Um, most of that is all communication and service availability and accessibility. Rebecca Bradshaw, a rural child health nurse, speaking to our reporter, Madeleine McCosker. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Let's head now to the small rural town of Menindee, a place well known in recent years for the mass fish kills along the Darling River in New South Wales. Local residents say not enough has been done about the problem and they're concerned that sightings of large native fish dying could mean there's another event around the corner. In early September, the state's chief scientist released findings and recommendations into a mass fish kill in March. But locals say they've yet to see any action. Bill Ormond has this story for us. Seven months since tens of millions of native fish suffocated to death along the Darling River and very little has changed according to locals. Hot temperatures, low oxygen levels in the water and reports of dead Murray cod are all ominous warning signs for what lies ahead. 
It's an all too familiar tale for locals like farmer and water researcher Kate McBride. I think a lot of them in the indie community, but also you know people within this Darling Barker fight more broadly, are asking, what now? We've had a great deal of reports in the past. You know, there's a whole appendix within the Fish Kill report actually talking about all the recommendations that previous reports have had. So we know what's going wrong and we know what needs to be done, but we're not seeing any action on the ground. And I think that's really disappointing. The chief scientist's report outlined short-term measures which could be rolled out within 12 months, focused on maintaining water quality to reduce the likelihood of a repeat of March's catastrophe. It also mentioned the distinct possibility of more mass fish kills if nothing was done. Kate McBride says she's worried about what might happen and hasn't seen or heard much communication about plans to mitigate any future events. We're essentially on high alert for future fish kills. We've been told by our water minister and by other water departments that there's likely going to be fish kills moving into summer. So we really need to not only be working on how do we mitigate these issues, but the other side of it as well, when we do see future fish kills, what's the emergency management side of this look like? And how are we making sure that you know there's going to be clean-up or people on the ground there ready to respond to any future fish kills? There have been reports of 20 to 30 dead large Murray cod along the river and around the Menindee Lakes in the past few months. Some locals see that as a warning sign of what could happen. So we're sort of in this horrible cycle at the moment. We keep seeing these photos of really old Murray cod. And the recent New South Wales Fisheries Survey found just two juvenile Murray cod in that lower Darling section below Menindee down to Pencari. So the fact that the Murray cod populations within our river have absolutely collapsed, if that isn't caused to protect every living cod in the Menindee Weir pool right now, I don't know what is. And we need to have people from fisheries out there investigating what is killing these Murray cod right now to try and protect them moving forward. Jeff Looney is a fisherman and wildlife photographer who spent decades on the river and around the lake system. He believes the dead Murray cod sighted before summer are not a good sign. These are the biggest fish in the river and hopefully they would be the strongest fish in the river but they still seem to die. Early in the year we had bony herrings and golden perch and silver perch but now it's Murray cod so it's something that's just got to be fixed. His concerns are shared by Menindee resident Graham McCrabb, who'd like to see the full report recommendations which were released in late September implemented. At the moment it just seems to be, I don't know, business as usual or uh, she'll be right mate type attitude and it's clearly it's not right. Clearly we're still losing cod and yeah, just the lack of genuine intent by those agencies on the ground to uh, ascertain what's killing those cod is causing distress amongst the community, to be honest. Yeah, when you say that, it doesn't really sound like the lessons have been learnt from the past. Is that how you feel? Yeah, very much so. It feels very similar, and I think some of the staff changes and staff losses in recent time has left glaring holes in the ability for government to communicate with community, and at the moment... I don't think it's ever been worse where we sit at the moment. But Graham McCrabb does have hope for positive change after a new senior water role based in the region was advertised recently. New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson is scheduled to visit the region later this week and is planning to meet with locals to discuss the rollout of the Fishkill Inquiry recommendations. She says her government supports all the chief scientists' suggestions and work is being done behind the scenes to implement them. Bill Ormond with that story. This is ABC Australia Wide. 20 years ago, having a bottle of any milk other than dairy in the fridge might position you as a bit of a hippie, but that's no longer the case. 
Oat, soy and almond milk has gone gangbusters with a whopping 40% of Aussie households now regularly stocking a bottle of plant-based milk in the fridge. Whether it's motivated by ethical concerns, health reasons or simply a taste preference, the non-dairy milk market is booming and it's showing no signs of slowing down. Our reporter Annie Brown visited one of Australia's major plant milk processor to get the details. Did you want to go into that first room and have a look at the bottles being blown up? Go have a look, yeah. I'm inside the Vitasoy factory on the outskirts of Wodonga in the northeast of Victoria. The other line's just started, so you can do that as well. Around me is a moving line of milk bottles that are being filled, capped, labelled and packed. It's fast. What's that? What are they making? Um, that's our almond barista. Oh, OK, yeah. <laughs> General Manager Peter Bowman is giving me a tour. So what we've, um, what we've just wor- wor- walked through, Annie, is um, our PET line. So it's our one-litre uh, milk line. And then it goes to supermarkets where people buy it and put it in their fridge. Yep, it eventually will end up there. It goes to our distribution centre first, and then from there the product's distributed to customers. And talk us through your product range. What do you make here in Barranduda? Yep, so in our, in our milk we do, uh, we do soy-based milk, we do almond-based, we do rice, we do oats, and we do coconut. And we're also now doing um, either soy-based or oat-based yoghurt. Materials that you make your products out of, your soy beans, your almond nuts, your oats, um, where do you source those from? Yep, so they're all, they're all um, Australian source. So we talk about our soy beans. We, um, we have growers in, in far north Queensland, around, around Atherton, um, all the way down through northern New South Wales, the Riverina, uh, for our soybeans. When this plant first started, I think in the first 12 months it put through around about 10 million litres um, and as I said before we'll, we'll be looking at sort of 65 to 68 million litres at the moment and we're playing in a really good market. It's a, um, it's a growing market and it's a good alternative. In the last decade the plant-based milk market has grown year on year. 40% of households now have a plant-based milk in their fridge. CEO of Vitasoy Australia, David Tyak, says the expansion has been driven by a range of consumer behaviours. Need-based or lifestyle change to veganism or just a bit of more uh, awareness of the whole offerings of plant-based milk as it become more, more prevalent in supermarkets, the range is growing, the size is growing, as well as in coffee shops too. There's not so many coffee shops these days where you can't walk in and order it a soy latte or an almond latte or an oat latte too. So the, the proliferation of the offers makes it more seen and therefore more people are, are trying it too. I guess between soy, almond and oat, they'd be your most popular milk yes, they products. Are. Yes, they are. Which one of those have you seen the most growth in recently? Uh, oats. O- oats gone absolutely ballistic the last four years. Right. And what's driving that growth in oat, do you think? There's probably a couple of things to it. One I'd say is that it's the most sustainable crop in the plant-based milk game. So least water use, least land required, least emissions. Next best in a plant-based milk is soy. So therefore, the, the, it's from a sustainability-wise, it's the best one there. In terms of the taste, it's quite a neutral taste. So it's a, a, a very good gateway jump from dairy into the world. Plant-based milk is oats. It's creamy, it's neutral in its taste profile by itself and allows then the ingredients that you're using with, because you use it to either wet cereal or whiten coffee or that part too, 
in coffee, the caffeine sense it makes the oat shine, uh, makes coffee shine through when you use oats. On soy and almond, the next two biggest ones um, in terms of you know, usage in those occasions, soy can be found beany and almond can be, can be found nutty. In terms of popularity, is, is soy still king or is almond or oat uh, sort of creeping up behind it? Almond is king. So soy used to be the only offer in, in the world. So late 80s, 90s, it was only soy. Almond became the thing in the last 10 years, followed by soy. Oats coming up fast as number three highest in growth. We'll probably eclipse soy in the marketplace next one or two years. And I think we'll then uh, take over from almond two to be the largest segment in a plant-based milk market within a year or so post that. That's David Tayek, the CEO of Vitasoy Australia, speaking to our reporter, Annie Brown. Australia's next international hip-hop star could come from any corner of the country and that's what a workshop recently held in Mildura in Victoria hopes to tap into. This story from Emil Pavlich. These kids are crafting up original hip-hop music in a workshop in northwest Victoria. Aged 10 to 17, the kids are finding out what it takes to write and produce a single, as well as shoot a music video. One of the workshop participants, Zach Flayton, says he's gotten a lot out of the course. You've got to do all these different things and you've got to make your own original song, not like based off other people's songs, just your own song, or you could use loops. It was just heaps of fun. Wemba Wemba hip-hop veteran Phil Murray, known as Philly on stage when he's rapping, is mentoring these kids. He says he's witnessed hip-hop culture in Australia shift during his decade or so in the scene. There's so many black and brown hip-hop artists and R&B artists who are just all on airwaves and winning audio awards and such a beautiful thing to see. As an Indigenous storyteller, he believes the subculture can give voice to those unable to express their views in more conventional ways. And this is a way that a lot of people consume uh, information a lot of time, especially young people. Um, is through music and hip hop music, music specifically. In recent years, Indigenous artists have dominated the ARIA Awards. In 2021, First Nations artists Bujera and The Kid Leroy racked up nine nominations together. Last year, Yulnu rapper Baker Boy won Album of the Year for his debut studio album, Gila. Philly says other artists, including Drill Rap Crew, won four. Kobe D and Barker also represent perspectives and stories not often heard in mainstream society. I see Barker as, you know, the most important voice in this country. She represents a very specific... Um, sister, you know, a very specific Aboriginal woman uh, in this in this country, and those black women a lot of time, those ones that aren't let through doors, those ones that aren't let in spaces to share their opinions. Barker represents them. Brody Flowers helps disengaged youth get into programs like this. He says it's amazing to see the energy the kids bring. They're all different groups, different backgrounds and everything, and then the the blend of that together has just been like a beautiful process. Like, I don't want to get teary and everything, but it's been great. He says Philly is a prime example of how a music career can be carved out by a First Nations kid from the bush. Showing that to the youth, telling his story, and then giving that hope for the kids that are 
the next generation of the music within Mildura and Australia in general. Hopefully international. I mean, it'd be nice. Philly believes producing music that can be disseminated widely is more simple than ever. Now that it's so accessible and it's free to do, essentially, um, we're seeing the fruits of that labour and that's a lot of black and brown musicians sharing their talents on the biggest stages in this country. Um, So... I'm mad proud of everybody that's doing anything right now and it's such a beautiful thing to see for sure. He sees the international success of the Kid Leroy as a prime example. One of the biggest artists in the world really um, when we look at the numbers and he's just a young black kid from Broken Hill that moved to Redfern and you know or Waterloo and ended up in the States at 14, 15 and now he's killing it. Participant Zach says Philly has shown them that they can make it big in the industry no matter which corner of the country they're from. That if you try something and you just go with it, then anything can happen. Anything's really possible. Like, if you just have a dream, just go for it. Don't stop. No one holds you back. Just do it. A very hopeful Zach there from Jura chatting there to our reporter, Emil Pavlic. And that is Australia-wide for this Tuesday. I hope you had a great day and a lovely evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.